at the time we had millions of users and I wanted to keep going. I wanted to, you know, figure out how to make it work. And I had a totally fractured investor base. Some people had put in millions of dollars and owned 10% of the company. Other people that put in a couple hundred thousand dollars and owned 60% of the company. I didn't have control. And, you know, the whole thing blew up. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and sign up for the free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter where I share how to reduce risk and create, grow, and protect your wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with Brett Martin. Brett, are you ready to join the mission? I'm ready to join, baby. Let's go. <laughs> I, I can't wait to introduce you to the audience because you put in this kind of strange last sentence to your bio. <laughs> and so here's Brett. Brett Martin is a co-founder of Kumo Space the virtual headquarters for remote teams and charge ventures, a pre-seed venture capital fund based in Brooklyn, New York. He also serves as adjunct professor at Columbia business school where he teaches data analytics and ladies and gentlemen, he loves you. Brett, take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you are bringing to this wonderful world. All true, Andrew. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. It's a, a pleasure to be here. Thought a lot about risk. I probably have more of an appetite for it than most as I've spent all day icing both of my shoulders from respective snowboarding and surfing injuries. But yeah, you know, I, I um, as an entrepreneur, I, I love to build products that help connect people. I've built products that have connected millions of people multiple times, launched three products used by tens of millions of people. And as a venture capitalist, I, I think about sort of early stage venture capitalists, I guess I think about what it takes to de-risk a business all day, every day. And I had at least five conversations with portfolio CEOs today about how they're removing risk from their business. So quite familiar with it. I've been on both sides of, of it. Mm. And tell us about what you're doing with Kumo Space. And one of the questions also is if, you know, why not just focus on, you know, VC? You know, why, why, why do you still find the desire to build as opposed to, let's say, some people are like, oh, I, I'm tired of that. I just want to, you know, invest. Well, yeah, that's it's funny because I think investing is often seen as so glamorous, and a lot of people that are building are looking at investors and are envious of it. But you know, venture venture capital is a privileged job. What do I do? I sit on a pile of money. I meet really interesting people, hardworking people, all day, every day. I pick a few that I really like, and they pick me, and then. I give them money and then we try to get rich together. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of a dream job. There's there's no doubt about it. That said, personally, I love to build. I love the look that when I show put some a product that I built and helped build in someone's hands and they have that moment of delight and excitement and they can accomplish something they could never do before. Or in this case, you know, they use it to connect with another human, use technology to connect with human in another, in a more authentic way. That is what really drives me. And so I was investing out of charge ventures, my current fund for seven years when I saw a great business 
with lots of revenue growing really fast, was really high margin, that was defensible with an amazing management team. You know, the easiest way thing to do is just give them money and then sit back and wait for your check. But when I saw Kumo space, you know, this new form of interaction, a more human, authentic way of like interacting with groups of people online, I said, I'm getting back into the arena. And I, I said, I can't help but build this. And I think that's really should be anyone's criteria for starting a business is if you literally can't imagine yourself doing anything else. Mm. And I'm at the website of Kumo Space and it tries to identify the pain. And so I'm going to go through it briefly just for the audience so you understand what Brett's doing. But it says, is your team feeling disconnected and siloed? Say goodbye to unproductive and morale-draining video calls with virtual office that brings your team together. Get answers and alignment instantly. Try it for free. So just tell us a little bit more about what, what you're delivering through Kumo Space and maybe for the listeners, how they could you know check it out. Maybe go they can go to the website and learn more, but tell us about the mission you're on there. Yeah, our mission is to take the millions of people that are working for remotely or for hybrid teams or distributed teams and give them a place to show up and do great work together every day. In the same way that, you know, an office, a physical office, it's not just for a place to do work. It's a place to build relationships with your coworkers. It's a place to goof off. It's a place to have lunch. It's a place to, you know, watch presentations, to have events, right? It, it serves all, it's a place to keep your files and your, your information. And it's a, it's a place to impress customers and show off your company culture and personality. And so we know, we feel like we lost a lot of that when, you know, when we moved to working from our desk at home, I mean, Zoom and mm. Slack are incredibly productive, but they don't do a lot of the things I just described. And so we felt like there was a, place for a new type of tool where you could be online with, you know, your 20 other people at your company or 2000 other people at your company and really feel their presence, know that they're there, feel like there's people working alongside you and actually go over and tap them on the shoulder if you need help or if you need to get unblocked or if you just wanted to goof off a little bit or if you wanted to introduce yourself to a new person who joined the team. So that's, mm-hmm. that's the mission of Kumo Space. Just give all the remote workers the same kind of positive experience that you might have in an office. And it, you know, for a lot of traditional people, what they've done is said, as soon as the pandemic's over, let's get back to the office. But that's not going to be the case for a lot of people, right? Where I think about one of my business, I do so much online and I have a course called Evaluation Masterclass Bootcamp. And basically I also hire my students and others that are great. And so I've got a a guy that was a student. He lives in Egypt. And he's just passionate about bringing the student experience through the boot camp, And so I hired him and well, we use all the tools, you know, we use zoom and we use Slack and we do all that stuff. But if I come into the, if I create, let's say the virtual office type of thing and virtual events and all that, what would you say is, you know, the thing that we're going to notice that wasn't delivered through zoom or Slack or whatever? Well, let me, I can share, I can answer that with an anecdote. So when we launched Kumo Space, it was initially because I um, used to run an angel investing event for my fund. And it was bringing 50 sort of middle-aged farts like myself together. And we would share deals. And it was a great source of deal flow for my fund. Pandemic hit. And everyone said, why don't you bring this online? And I said, 
who wants to hear me give a PowerPoint presentation to 50 of my friends every month? And so, you know, we realized there was a, a gap in the market. There wasn't a really good place to bring groups of people online where they could connect in small groups and move fluidly between small groups. And we launched Kumo Space. We didn't really know what people were going to use it for, but we knew it was better for that. And we had millions of people use it. We had them use it for weddings, for funerals, for graduations, for as virtual offices, for events. You know, we eventually, you know, we were trying to decide, okay, which direction do we want to go in? And so we had, we actually, we still believe in face-to-face. We think there's a huge value in face-to-face. We actually have quarterly offsites where we bring our team together from all over the world to connect in person. It's great mm-hmm. to build rapport, right? But we just think it's inverted. We think you should spend most of your time, you know, remote wherever you want without all the friction of being going to the office and then occasionally come together. So anyway, we're about to have our first in-person offsite. We're so excited. And then Omicron hits mm. and half our team gets sick and we have to cancel the offsite. Now, luckily, we were in a very good position to throw a virtual offsite. And so we pivoted on a dime. We threw a virtual offsite in our own virtual environments. And we sent out a survey to our team. And we said, you know, what are your favorite things about working on back home space? They said, we love shipping products. We love working hard. We, you know, we love, you know, getting good work done. And we love the flexibility of remote work. We'd love to be able to do what, you know, work from anywhere in the world, not have to commute, et cetera. So what do we hate about working at Kumo Space? And our team is, we have a whole radical candor thing. Mm. And they said, you know, we hate cross-departmental communication. It's really hard to get aligned with people sometimes. And you know what? We don't feel like we have as a strong bonds with our team as we would have if we were working in person. And we said, holy crap, we have the same problems as every remote work or every remote, fully remote company in the world. True. We weren't using our Kumo space as an office. And we said, we need to dog food our own product. We need to live in this thing all day. And so we pivoted into being a virtual office. That was about a year and a half ago. And it's completely changed the way we do business like mm. the team morale is up the less commiss communication people are brought up to speed faster better onboarding and so it really just started with our own experience well it's it's fascinating to learn about and i've i've got this site up on mine and i'm going to set up a space myself and and i see that it's, it's pretty simple to set up a free space so for the listeners out there if you're facing some of these challenges, you know, check it out. And this is what I love about podcasting is to get people like yourself that are trying to solve problems, you know, on there. So I appreciate you, you know, sharing about it. And why do you add, he loves you at the end of your bio? (laughs) Yeah. You know, I, it's hard to take a lot of work too seriously. You know, I feel like LinkedIn is just like a, a total cringe zone of, people taking everything too seriously. And, you know, that's how I feel. I I love people. I love connecting with people, love spending time with people. And, you know, that's the vibe of Kumo Space. And so why not put put it in the bio? It's great. Love it. Well, I love you and our audience (laughs) loves. So let's share that love. And now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it. And then Tell us your story. I had just come off my first failed startup. I moved back to New York City. I needed a job. I got connected through my friend. He got me a job at a 
new, you know, early stage venture capital fund. This is around 2009. And I was, you know, looking at deals, making investments, everything was great. And then the, the owners of the fund said, you know what, we actually want to turn this into a venture studio. We're going to build companies, not invest in them. And I said, all right, well, I want to start my own company. So that's fine. And I might as well do it with you guys. You're already here. And at the time I was 26, didn't know any better. I got a pretty bad deal <laughs> on uh, ownership. I think I never owned more than 20% of the company that I was founding, which, you know, it sounds insane today, but back then, and you know, 15 years ago, honestly, it was all over the place and incubators were getting away with, you know, silly stuff like that. And in my head, I said, you know, it's not about money, it's about control. Uh, or I said, you know, I said, I don't care about money. And then, but what I realized was, yeah, you're right. Money didn't matter. What really mattered was control. And so we <laughs> take this deal. I start this company. I take a little bit, I take investments. So I got, you know, I took 150K for and giving up 80% of my company, which is <laughs> a pretty bad, pretty bad deal if, for the your audience probably chuckling. And so I took that and I, got the company up and running and I built a proof of concept and I went down to South by Southwest, which is funny because I'm actually going down there this year, 2023, if anyone's around. And I barged my way into a, a pitch meeting and I cut to the front of the line like any self-respecting entrepreneur. I pitch some venture capitalists that were down there. And you know, when a VC does a, a big event like that, they actually don't plan on doing deals. It's really just marketing. Anyway, I pitched my startup and these guys go, it's a pretty, it's pretty interesting. We should, we should actually talk to you. So I have another meeting with them the next day. The next thing I know, I raised another a million dollars, and uh, I'm off to the races. We launched this thing. We're, we're, you know, we're on the cover of. We had 300 press mentions in six months, in the, you know, in the Times and you know all sorts of fancy things. The TechCrunch disrupt. We launched anyway. Center of the universe for about 15 minutes. Our whole space freezes over like the like the ninth circle of hell. We go to South by Southwest the next year, us and 30 competitors who launched in our space, they're all using the iPhones, you know, location services. Back then the iPhone wasn't optimized. So every time any app asked for your location, they'd ping the cell tower. So when you have 30 apps asking for your location all the time in the background, your battery lasts for about 10 minutes and the press just cans us and everything freezes over. And, you know, at the time we had millions of users and I wanted to keep going. I wanted to, you know, figure out how to make it work. And I had a totally fractured investor base. Some people had put in millions of dollars and owned 10% of the company. Other people had put in a couple hundred thousand dollars and owned 60% of the company. I didn't have control. And, you know, the whole thing blew up. And at that point, I had 60, 70, $80,000 on credit cards. You know, and I was personally supporting their credit cards. All the funding dried up, and all the investors just walked away. And so there I was, scrambling, raising 25k every two weeks just to keep the company afloat. I did that for, I did that for six months until I finally got someone else that was willing to recapitalize the company and start the whole thing again. And all I needed to do was get my investors to agree to that deal, and they wouldn't take it. And I spent a month doing it. The whole thing blew up. I lost all my money. Everyone who invested lost all of their money. And so, yeah, I, you know, 
it was an investment that was worth worse than a zero because I also wasted three years of my life doing it. Although I wouldn't consider it a waste, but that was a pretty bad investment. I'm not going to lie. Wow. And how would you summarize the lessons that you learned? Oh, there's so, there's so many, Andrew, but I think the probably most important one I learned was about partnership, which is, um, you know, if you're in a partnership that's not working, you know, you have to push it to conclusion. So you either have to accept it how it is, you have to change it and make it work, or you have to part ways. But the the absolute thing you cannot do is complain about it and, you know, stay in the middle ground and we're, you know, not draw it to a resolution, right? So that's, that's, that's the worst thing. The worst thing is to be in an unhappy marriage, but not doing anything about it. Mm. And so, you know, nowadays I try to recognize when I am complaining or, you know, there's one of my favorite quotes is a man can fail many times, but he isn't a failure until he starts to blame someone else. <laughs> and uh, that was, that was the key learning. I realized I was complaining about other people, complaining about my partners, complaining about the deal I took, which I took, by the way, yeah. instead of just, you know, taking action, accepting it how it was, fixing the situation and moving forward. And and frankly, I didn't learn it fully then. I had to go through a similar situation again where I finally got through it. But that was the most important lesson. So that would be my encouragement for everyone mm-hmm. who's thinking about a partnership is, uh, or who's in an unhappy marriage, a uh, business marriage, is that... Um, you know, make it happy or let them to live with it or get out. Yeah, that's uh, that's great. And I'm, maybe I'll share a couple of things I took away. I was just taking notes as you were talking. And occasionally people come and ask me for relationship advice for them. I've never been married and never really had a super long-term relationship. I, I hope that this will be the year that that changes. But but I always, I, I have a pretty good logical structure in my brain. So I always tell those people, I said, well, since you've come and asked me, I said, I'll, I'll give you, you know, I'll, I'll try to help. So I'd always say, I'm just going to ask you one question. I'd like you to answer it yes or no. And that question will give you the answer to your question about your relationship. And then I really don't have anything else to say. And so my one question is, you've been together, let's say, with this person for a couple of years. You know them very well now. You didn't know them well in the beginning. So if you weren't in this relationship and this person walked up to you today and wanted to start this relationship, would you start it? Yes or no? And if your answer is yes, then you've got some work to do. Like you're saying, Brett, like then freaking fix it. Mm-hmm. But if your answer is no, then end it. Yep. And I think that's where what the other thing I wrote down about what you talked about is resolve the problem, resolve problems, stop complaining and freaking solve it. And one of the things that's interesting about Thailand is that confrontation is not rewarded socially in Thailand. And so it's very difficult for Thai people to resolve conflicts. And therefore, in many, many business situations in Thailand, there is no resolution. And then what happens is that the company splits into fiefdoms where those people are building their politically, you know, power within that organization to then get their supporters to oppose the other person. 
and they'll tear, you know, it, it just, it's just the way it happens and it can tear an organization apart. So I've learned a lot from, you know, confrontation. And, you know, if you look at a Thai police versus American police, American police like rush in for confrontation. Whereas Thai police kind of like, well, you know, they take it kind of slowly, you know, it's just a different mm-hmm. mentality. So the first thing I really take away is identify your problems and solve them. We're all going to be better off. Yeah, exactly. Just acknowledge that they're there and, you know, realize that all the complaining in the world isn't going to get you anywhere. So it's pretty simple, but it's surprising how many people let things fester. Yep. The second thing I wrote down was about founder shareholding. So you mentioned that, you know, the deal that you got, and I want to help, I want you to help us to understand if a young founder has a good idea, they don't have much money, but they got a good idea and they're going out to raise money. What should they be expecting of how much of their company they should own versus give up? to get the capital in. And of course, let's think about it as good faith actors, you know, in this in this particular scenario. Yeah, I mean, look, like every deal is a deal and there are unique circumstances. But, you know, as a pre-seed venture capitalist in New York, there's a pretty consistent band in which people raise money. And, and it obviously depends on the idea and it depends on how far along it is and the traction and the founder's experience and things like that. But, you know, a pre-seed round, which is usually a million to $2 million, 750 to 250K to $2 million, is somewhere between a 4 to $10 million post-money valuation. So mm-hmm. you're giving up somewhere between 10 to 20, somewhere between 10 to 20% of your company in a pre-seed round. Seed round is Three to five million dollars in New York for a company that is really or anywhere between a, you know, twelve and twenty-five million dollar post money valuation, and so you know that is somewhere between twenty, you know, between fifteen and twenty-five percent. Those are the consistent general amounts that people will give up when they raise their first round of capital. And as they're raising capital throughout that process, what should they expect their to be diluted down to. Obviously, they have 100% of the business when they have no capital and all that, but they're raising money. Where do they end up after a few of these rounds? Yeah, you know, this is where capital efficiency comes into play, right? Like, if you can, you should bootstrap your company and not take any money from venture capitalists Mm. like myself. You know, God bless you. And you know, there's nothing that VCs love more than companies that don't need their money. So... (laughs) But I think I can't remember. There's some stats, you know, by the time you get to an IPO, a founder, you know, if they have five to 10 percent of the company, you know, that's they're lucky. I think that, you know, we plan on, you know, somewhere between 40 to, you know, 50 percent dilution from the time we invest to the time we exit. So founder, you know, add a little more on top of that. Okay. I'm just reminded of one of my episodes, episode 192, with the guy I interviewed was a guy named Sampat, and he had a he has a really interesting business. But the key thing there is that his VC money fell apart, and he realized the title of it. I said um, what what we went through was the idea that basically cash flow is your ultimate source 
of value, you know, and if everything else falls apart, getting cash from your customer. And then I heard someone say to me recently, we're customer financed. <laughs> AKA that revenue. Before? That sounds I, great. I love that. You know, we're customer financed. Beautiful. Uh, one yeah. last question I have is about valuations. And you mentioned about the problem about having different people come in at different valuations and different shares that they're getting. How important is that as, as a founder is going through that process that, you know, is there a, an alignment that they should be thinking about related to that? Or how do, how do they think about the valuation and the shares that they're giving up in the different rounds? Yeah. You know, that's what I think we can go back to the story I told, right? Which was, I was not valuation sensitive. So there's a lot more than valuation, right? There, there's actually, you know, I think a lot of founders get hung up on the headline valuation. Oh, is my company worth, you know, $10 million or $100 million or a billion dollars? And, and you know, the headline valuation is not actually the most, it's important, but it's not always the most important term. You know, there's lots of other terms, you know, how you're going to get paid back or, you know, what, what happens in a down round situation, who has control, how many board seats do you give up? There's lots of other terms that, you know, you might be willing to take a lower headline valuation, but, you know, in return for getting some other, some other terms. So mm. my encouragement, you know, that's where you really should lean on your legal counsel who should be giving you good advice about what's the better deal from a holistic perspective. Mm -hmm. It's also one of the other questions I have for you is about how much should a founder expect to be supported by their investor? Because I, I work with some different private equity guys and VC guys and also with some startup companies. And it's often the case that there's almost very little value added by the investor and the startup person feels like there should have been more. I'm just curious, what's your experience and how would you advise a founder who's looking at different investors and some saying, yeah, we can do this with you and we can do that, or how would they look, how should they look at that? I have a blog post that I've never published called Investors, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. <laughs> I don't know if it ever will get published, but I have seen that the check size is often not at all correlated with the actual value add. Mm -hmm. I've had small investors that have, you know, I've had large investors that have done nothing. I've had small investors that have done a ton and I've had everything in between. So it's really a case by case basis and you really got to feel people out to figure out, you know, do you have the right vibe? I think, you know, is this someone you want to work with? So as an investor, you know, a really important criteria for me is, is this someone I want to work with for the next yeah. 10 years? You know, I'm investing in these pre-seed companies. I have to hang out with these people for a decade, you know, <laughs> and if I don't really enjoy, like really enjoy spending 30 minutes on the phone with them, you know, once a week, right. I don't, I'm not going to give them my money. Even if it's a great deal, like that's not worth it. That, that's not worth it. And it usually just does not, it's not going to lead in the right place. Yeah. And, you know, I started a business, a coffee factory here in Thailand 28 years ago with my best friend, Dale, and he's, he runs it. But when he calls at night at the end of his day to talk about what's going on, I love it. I just, you know, for 30 years, and we've been friends since we were in high school, 
And he came to Thailand and then, you know, said, hey, here's an opportunity. But I just really, really enjoy talking with him and working on the business with him and, and going through that. So that's a great, great lesson for all of us. Now, let's just go back in time and imagine that you knew all the things that you know now, based on what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what's one action that you'd recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? It's so hackneyed. I, I almost don't want to say it, but at the end of the day, I just think it's all about who you work with. <laughs> to, you know, it's don't, and maybe the more tactical advice is don't be short term thinking about, you know, long term partnerships. Don't take the deal just because it's there, or just because someone's dangling money in front of you, or just because you know you're pressured to take to work with people that you're not excited about. Always hold out for people that you are love and respect. At the end of the day, a good business partnership is the same as a relationship. Is you have to like the person, you have to respect the person and you have to trust the person. And so if nothing else matters relative to those three points and the, and those three three things are absolutely necessary. So yeah, that's the short yeah. answer of it. You know, my co-founder Kumo Space, Yang Mao, I've worked with him now in three companies and you know, I same thing. I there's no there's I you know, he's a bastard sometimes, but I love him to death and uh, <laughs> there's no one else I'd rather work with. Yeah, my other business, I have a Thai business partner and he and I have worked shoulder to shoulder in the same office, in the same operation when we worked in investment banks. And then we started up our company together. And I said, at one point when our business wasn't doing that well, he said, what's our plan B? And I said, there is no plan B. I want to work the rest of my life with you doing what we like to do and doing it together. And that was when we really doubled down and said, how do we really build this business? So I, I just, I, I love the, the focus on that. And I think that's the key, the money stuff and all of that, all those things can work out. But man, when it's not working between the chemistry and, and the cooperation, there's nothing there. It's gone. So what's a resource that you'd recommend, stuff that you've done, your, your sites, anything like that, feel free to share with us that, you know, can help. Well. You know, one thing, maybe if I, if I, you'll permit me a yep. little, uh, a ability to pitch something we built. So we built a thing called a stats for startups. If you check this out, it's statsforstartups.com. Yep. And we basically went through the thousands of pitch decks that we've seen at Charge Ventures since we started eight years ago. And we pulled out all the metrics and we kind of built a periodic table of, that's so whether that's annual contract value or accounts payable or ARPA average revenue per account, right? Basically all the sort of type of stats or metrics that you might see to evaluate a startup and we put it all in one place. So that's one place that you as an entrepreneur, if you're trying to understand how to describe your SaaS business and you know your investor asks you for a cohort analysis of your users, you understand what that you can look go to startups.com, look it up. And you know, understand. And is this all for free, or are you are you charging for this? Oh, this is all for free. This is Incredible. just uh, something we put together for the community. So, ladies and gentlemen, 
I'm at the site right now, stats for startups. I'm looking at annual contract value. It explains like what it is and information about it and all the other items there. So this is a great, great stuff. So I think that's one of the best resources I've seen recommended on the show in a long time. So well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. I give a shout out to my partners, Thanos and Thomas. They uh, put a lot of good work into this. That's yeah, fantastic. All right. Last question. Besides surfing, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? It's, it's crazy. I'm, I think that, uh, I would like, there's a long-term partnership that I would like to lock down as well. That's, uh, I, I have some good, you know, partner deal I'm working on. And I feel like if I could lock it down, it's a, it's a particularly long-term one, one that I hope to have for the rest of my life. And so if I can get that done, that, that'd be great. Sounds exciting. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. And this discussion hopefully reduces risk in those listeners who are in the startup space. If you've not yet joined that mission, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com and join the free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter to reduce risk in your life. As we conclude, Brett, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of AE Stats Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment <laughs> ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Be, be bold and be curious. Have fun. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today. We added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on The Upside.